Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to From Beneath the Hollywood Sign. If you love old movies, Hollywood history, or the golden age of filmmaking, you've come to the right place. This is the podcast that talks about amazing stories of Tinseltown from another era and fascinating conversations with writer-producer Steve Kubine and actress-writer Nan McNamara. So Steve, did Ava Gardner and Howard Hughes have a good relationship? Well, they did until he dislocated her jaw. What? Well, don't worry. She hit him back with an ashtray. From Beneath the Hollywood Sign is the gin joint for you. On this episode of Most Notorious, the 1912 shipwreck of Chicago's famed Christmas tree ship. Well, first of all, they were overcrowded with uh, uh, evergreen trees. The captain had built a a special housing in, in the middle of the deck to house some more Christmas trees. And so for them to sail the ship, these men had to climb over that special that housing, and uh, you know to get to the from the front of the ship to the back of the ship, or to maneuver uh, or work any of the sails or any of the lines on board. They had difficulty doing that. But uh, what happened? What probably happened was that the ship started leaking. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Most Notorious Podcast. Merry Christmas. Happy whatever you find happy in this season of nostalgia, celebration, giving, and reflection. I am very pleased to have as my guests today Chris Cole and Joan Forsberg. They are well-known maritime historians, scuba divers, lecturers, photographers, and videographers. They are a husband and wife team who love to explore shipwrecks, especially Great Lakes shipwrecks. They are the producers of 16 documentaries and 19 books, including the one they are here to talk about today. It is called The Christmas Tree Ship. Great to have you both on. Thank you. Well, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. Yes, we're very happy to chat with you, Eric. So I'd love to know where your interest in maritime history started, and what is it about the Great Lakes that is especially appealing to you? Well, I'll start by uh, saying that uh, I've always been interested in 
um, ships, moving on the water uh, on ships. Even as a child, uh, my, my parents uh, took me uh, across the Atlantic Ocean on ocean liners a couple of times. And uh, I do remember at the age of 14 photographing uh, icebergs in the North Atlantic and uh, the, the lifeboats on board our ocean liner. And, um, and so that's probably where it started for me. But uh, I also was fascinated by stories about uh, shipwrecks. In fact, the very first book I ever read was about a shipwrecked sailor. It was a book called Robinson Crusoe. And I read that when I was uh, in, in grade two. Um, and uh, it's been with me ever since, it's a kind of inf quite an in influence in my life. And of course, uh, I had friends uh, years ago when I was in my 20s uh, who uh, uh, were also interested in doing a lot of uh, snorkeling and swimming, and, uh, and they got into scuba diving at about the same time I did. They encouraged me to join them, so I, I did. And uh, what I found intriguing is that there was so little information about Great Lakes shipwrecks and shipwrecks in the Great Lakes is about all that scuba divers have to dive on. We don't have colorful coral reefs or rainbow-hued uh, fish or anything like that, or warm water for that matter, but uh, we do have the best preserved shipwrecks in the world. When I was a child, um, my family lived near the ocean in New York, and I loved the sea. In fact, my mother thought I was more fish than girl because if we would go to the beach, I would go in the water and not come out until I absolutely had to. I loved it. I loved everything about it. And then when I moved to the Great Lakes area and the, the Great Lakes were large enough to almost seem as though they were the ocean but they didn't have things that the ocean had in them, the, the coral and the, and the fish and, and all of that wonderful underwater marine life. But to my astonishment, <laughs> when I met Chris, I suddenly realized, you know what? I am a ship nut. I love ships. And so taking that love of ships that I've always had and of course and I have a degree in history well you marry those two things and you get maritime history and and of course if it's the Great Lakes all too frequently it means shipwrecks so there you are so what makes Great Lakes shipwrecks more preserved than other shipwrecks. And why are there so many shipwrecks on the Great Lakes? Well, uh, for one thing, the very cold, fresh waters are the, the main factor, I would say. Um, in salt water, you have uh, wood-destroying creatures uh, that, that within a year, any wooden vessel would, uh, that's, uh, that isn't buried in the sand would, uh, would be eaten by teredo worms or uh, items like that. And uh, in the Great Lakes, we don't have that sort of thing. Because it's cold, fresh water, it helps preserve the wood. And there are shipwrecks that have been underwater for 150 years that look uh, as though if you could get them to the surface, they could sail away on their own. They're that intact. And, uh, and also the salt water corrodes steel. 
if you've seen pictures of Titanic, it looks like it's dissolving. It's something um, Dr. Ballard called rusticles forming. And you don't have that in the Great Lakes because it's fresh water. So it preserves wooden wrecks as well as steel wrecks. And so the wonderful thing for us is that we can really see exactly how people lived 150 years ago, 100 years ago, as recorded on these shipwrecks. They are underwater museums. I, I think most people uh, today are totally unaware, even the people that live in the Great Lakes, are totally unaware of the massive maritime history associated with the Great Lakes. Um, at the height of the, uh, the number of vessels uh, sailing the, the fresh waters of the Great Lakes, and that would have been the 1870s and 1880s, we had nearly 2,000 ships on these waters. And uh, of course, uh, that's, that's, that's just uh, in any given year, you know, and they came and went, they sank, they got uh, moved to the, uh, the East Coast, they, uh, they got abandoned, and, and uh, there were a lot of vessels that were built on the Great Lakes. And, uh, you know, for that reason, we have, well, we have more than uh, 6,000 shipwrecks in the Great Lakes. And a lot of them got there. Well, most of them, I'd say, sank because of uh, bad weather. We, we've all heard about the notorious gales of November. So November was always the worst month on the Great Lakes uh, for, for bad weather. And, and a lot of ships foundered uh, during that month. Of course, there were also collisions because uh, approaching a harbor, a big harbor like Chicago, the ships would be in pretty close proximity to one another. And if it was nighttime or foggy or rainy or a blizzard going on, they quite often collided with one another. Other factors would have been uh, stranding on a shoreline, you know, the wind blowing uh, ships onto a shore and then they, they would break up on the shoreline. Uh, ships also burned. The early steamers exploded because of uh, somebody not keeping an eye on the pressure in the, in the boiler. Uh, and so there were a number of reasons for so many ships being destroyed in the Great Lakes. There was so much shipping on the Great Lakes. And in the days before there were highways and trucks, well, ships were the main mode of transportation of goods, as well as people. And so when you have a lot of shipping, a lot of traffic, you have accidents of one kind or another, just like on our highways today. So that's that also was a huge factor, especially outside a busy harbor like Chicago, where the, the shipping traffic was just overwhelming. And that's why right outside Chicago, you have so many shipwrecks. So you've spent a lot of time on the Great Lakes poking around. Is there a, a ship that is especially desirable for explorers? One you would like to find? A, a holy grail of Great Lakes ships? Well, there are certainly ships, shipwrecks rather, that have not yet been found. Um, like the very first ship on the Upper Great Lakes was built in the year 1679 by the explorer LaSalle. And that shipwreck, uh, on its way back um, on the return leg of its maiden voyage, disappeared with a valu valuable cargo of furs and uh, all of its six uh, crew members. And it hasn't been found yet. Uh, uh, well, 
we haven't got enough evidence anyway uh, to prove that it's been located yet. There have been claims made, more than 20 of them in the last 150 years of that shipwreck having been found, but um, um, almost all of them have proven to be wrong. A couple of them are still <coughs> maybe, but we haven't got the smoking gun evidence yet for the wreck of the Griffin. Um, the most recent shipwreck in the Great Lakes is perhaps the most famous one that the world knows about, the wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald in Lake Superior. And um, it's deep, very deep. It's in five, five, what, 529 feet of, uh, of Lake Superior water. Um, and only two scuba divers have ever visited it. Uh, they pr prepared, they trained for months. They spent eight minutes on the shipwreck in total darkness. They had underwater lights with them, of course. And then they spent three hours coming back up to the surface and they have no desire to do it again. What you have so many times is a mystery surrounding a shipwreck. You know, sometimes we just don't know exactly why it sank. The Edmund Fitzgerald was traveling certainly through a terrible storm. And we know where it is, and we've seen photographs of it. And, of course, we know it broke apart. It split in half, and that would, that would certainly kill any, any freighter. But the Griffin, we're not quite sure why exactly it sank, although it did seem to, to head straight into a storm. But where it sank and what happened to the crew precisely, all of that is a mystery. And people love a mystery. So that's those, those kind of ships that we don't know exactly and precisely what happened to them that's exciting to learn about. You write in your book about the history and evolution of the Christmas tree. And for many people, their first exposure to Christmas trees started with an illustration, right? In the 1848 London Illustrated News. Okay, well, let's go back even earlier. Let's go back to the early 1600s when, uh, according to tradition, Martin Luther in Germany set up the first Christmas tree with uh, uh, lighted candles on it, uh, set, set it up in his, his residence, his, his uh, home, um, with lighted candles and uh, uh, fruit and uh, candies and things like that. Uh, you know, they didn't have any fancy Christmas tree ornaments back then. But that that seems to have uh, caught on, in Germany at least. And it, it, it finally did catch on in surrounding countries in, in the early 1800s, uh, like in Austria and uh, Denmark and Sweden and France. Um, in England, it took uh, a little longer. It, it didn't catch on until uh, the 1840s. Uh, Queen Victoria, young Queen Victoria, had... Uh, uh, had married a, a, a German prince, and uh, he brought his uh, tr tradition of setting up a Christmas tree to England with him, and she liked the idea. And so they, starting in the uh, early 1840s, they set up a Christmas tree uh, with, um, again, with uh, fruit and, and uh, candy and, and real candles in uh, the royal palace in London. And uh, Finally, in the year 1848, there was a, a large uh, picture, not a photograph, but a drawing 
of Queen Victoria and her husband, Albert, and several of their children around a Christmas tree. It was a full-page uh, drawing that appeared in uh, a very popular London uh, newspaper at that time, uh, London Illustrated News, and uh, it caught on with the public. So starting in 1848, uh, after uh, 1848, uh, after the appearance of that drawing, uh, people thought, well, why don't we do that? Why don't we get a, an evergreen tree and put it up in our house uh, to celebrate Christmas with? And, uh, and uh, that's how that happened. It uh, took a little longer to get to the, uh, North America. Uh, Europeans brought it with them, quite frankly, the Germans and the Scandinavians. But uh, it wasn't until after the Civil War, 1860s, that uh, the uh, idea of a Christmas tree in a family home became uh, popular. Uh, and it started out being a, a large tree being displayed in a church or a school or uh, some other similar institution that the idea finally caught on with people that they could have a much smaller version of that huge tree in that public place in their own home. And they uh, started doing that pretty extensively by the late 1800s. And, and that's what uh, uh, the main reason was for the development of uh, Christmas tree ships. Ships that brought Christmas trees at the end of the year, the last run of the year in November, down to places that lacked evergreen trees, such as uh, the, the prairie ports of Chicago and Milwaukee. That's the start of the prairies. And so they had a hard time finding evergreen trees in that area. So they had ships bring them down and later trains, train loads bring them down to those big cities. So the Christmas tree ship, the ship's ship's name was the Rouse Simmons. W would you tell us about its background, how it was used to deliver Christmas trees, and a bit about its colorful captain as well? The Rouse Simmons was actually one of many Christmas tree ships, but for some reason, and and. People love a colorful story. Captain Santa is what Captain Herman Schooneman became known as because when he brought his load of Christmas trees to the Clark Street dock in Chicago every year, usually at the end of November, after having made that treacherous run from, from the north woods of 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 Michigan and Wisconsin, uh, with his load of Christmas trees, he had his his schooner decorated. There was a, a Christmas tree on top of the mast. There was lights, and his his wonderful family, his wonderful family, made wreaths, and and it was just such a festive event that so many families in Chicago looked forward to. But it was no means the only Christmas tree. It was the most famous Christmas tree ship. Um, his older brother had had uh, been running Christmas tree ships for many years, and he, he and his ship also went down in a treacherous storm in Lake Michigan in 1898. August Schooneman went down with the S. Tall, which was the name of his ship. Now. One of the things that the Schooneman brothers and so many other Christmas tree ship 
captains did was they used old broken down ships these were not brand spanking new they were old they were really near the end of their life so what they had been used for all year long was the lumber trade they were lumber carriers and then the last the last trip of the year was to bring christmas trees and that would be the end of their season because by then the lakes were too treacherous ice was starting to move in and and the lumber trade was done for the year but that last run with christmas trees was so profitable for them that it was worth the risk. Yeah, the uh, Rouse Simmons itself was built uh, uh, in Kenosha, uh, I'm sorry, Milwaukee, Wisconsin, in uh, 1868 by uh, uh, a man uh, who lived in Kenosha, Wisconsin, not, not that far away. And uh, it was built specifically for the, uh, the lumber trade, as, as Joan mentioned as uh, were so many other uh, vessels at that time on Lake Michigan, because uh, Chicago, basically, um, and, and the other big cities along the shoreline, they needed uh, lumber. They were building houses and buildings galore out of wood. Uh, and uh, so uh, it was very common for three quarters of the vessels coming into Chicago Harbor to be carrying lumber back in the 1870s. So, um, the uh, Rouse Simmons was, was a three-masted schooner, 127 feet long, and uh, it uh, spent by far most of its life carrying lumber, except, as Joan mentioned, the last, uh, the last three years of its life, uh, namely 1910, 1911, and 1912, for the last run of the season, it carried Christmas trees. And yet it, it, you know, it carried them for only three seasons, three years, and yet it's the most famous of all the Christmas tree carrying ships uh, in, in the history of the Great Lakes. Where in Chicago did they dock and set up shop? Uh, it was right by the Clark Street Bridge, right in the Chicago River. And it was quite an event. I mean, it was it must have been really, really exciting for Chicagoans to see this three masted schooner with lights and Christmas trees all over it coming uh, coming right up the Chicago River, right to the dock. And they were all waiting there, excited and happy. It must have been quite an event. You have to remember that just a few years earlier, in 1909, the uh, city fathers of Chicago decided that the, the, the city was, was too crowded with ships. The river, Chicago River, was too crowded with ships. So they moved the harbor down to Calumet, a few miles to the south. And so suddenly uh, there was very little activity going on on the Chicago River. And, uh, and especially also by, by 1910, the first year that the Rouse Simmons was used as a Christmas tree ship, there were very few schooners left in the uh, uh, sailing on the Great Lakes in, in any business, uh, lumber business or Christmas tree ship business. And so the, the sight of a sailing vessel had become somewhat of a rare sight by 1910 on the Great Lakes. So for the sake of tradition, people loved going down to the Clark Street Bridge, uh, walking on board the schooner, the Rouse Simmons, and buying a Christmas tree directly from Hermann Schoenemann, the captain of, of the vessel. We will be back in a few moments. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. 
Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Everybody, shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course, you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. Yeah, the show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. Thing done weird things. Cat and Jethro, Box of Oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the Box of Oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. Some of us love history. Others used to or never did because history was presented as nothing but the rote memorization of names, dates, and facts. Basically, the story got left out, and that made history kind of suck. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a university professor with a PhD in history, and bringing history to life is my passion. That's why I created my podcast, History That Doesn't Suck. I want to teach you everything you need to know about U.S. history, but I do so through stories. Let me tell you about George Washington begging his men not to mutiny against Congress. Clara Barton saving Union soldiers amid enemy fire. Enslaved Frederick Douglass risking his life for liberty. And about so many other figures as their real experiences make industrialization, social movements, and even congressional debates and tax policy come to life. Subscribe to History That Doesn't Suck today. And join me, Professor Greg Jackson, every other week for a new episode. Where I'd like to tell you a story. And we have returned. So it was a family tradition for the Schooneman family and a family tradition for many, many Chicagoans. You know, it was it was a family story for Chicagoans to buy the trees there, but they were being provided by a family, the captain and his wife and three daughters. They were all there on the Rouse Simmons, all you know, selling the trees and, and, and creating the wreaths and the boughs and, the, and all of the other evergreen decorations. And so it just was, everyone was in such good spirits and so happy. And it was, it heralded the beginning of the Christmas season. And this, for all of these newly arrived immigrants and children of immigrants and the families of immigrants, this meant a lot to them because there were no trees. They couldn't go out in the woods and and cut a tree because there weren't any woods right there. Okay. We also have to remember that this was probably the most uh, profitable project for any Christmas tree ship. That last run of the season uh, sometimes made as much money for, for the ship owner as uh, hauling all that lumber did throughout the spring, summer, and early fall. 
So it turned out to be a very profitable thing too um, for for the Shinemans, uh, and quite often uh, that was the reason they were still able to you know own their house, for example, uh, and live a relatively comfortable lifestyle because uh, they became so popular with their Christmas tree uh, ship in Chicago Harbor. And part of the reason they became so popular was the personality of Herman Schunemann. Mm-hmm. He was jovial, he was happy, and he he wore a Santa hat, and he could have just sold the trees as a, in, you know a simple business transaction, but he did not do that. He made it an event, a happy Christmas season event, and everyone loved that about him. He was he was fun to be with. So tell us about November 23rd, 1912, the terrible storm, blizzard, that the Rouse Simmons had the misfortune of meeting face-to-face on Lake Michigan. Well, Captain Schoenemann took the Rouse Simmons uh, to the northern part of Lake Michigan um, on October 3rd, 1912, and then for the next seven weeks, he and his crew members cut down Christmas trees in uh, that northern part of uh, the state of Michigan. And uh, they loaded them onto the ship. Uh, In fact, they cut so many that uh, they couldn't get them all onto the ship. He had to send a few of them down by train from from the far north reaches of of Michigan. And uh, he decided to uh, leave the harbor uh, up there in um, near Manistique, Michigan, on November 22nd, which is a, a Friday, and uh, of course there's a superstition that uh, no ship should leave a harbor on a Friday because it'll run into bad luck. Well, I guess maybe uh, they'd lost track of the days of the week while they were cutting lumber up there, or cutting trees rather, up there. And uh, they left on a Friday and ran into a, st- uh, normally it was a three-day trip down to, uh, a three-day sail down to Chicago. But on the second day, they were off uh, Two Rivers, Wisconsin, and and they were battling a very severe storm uh, that they had hoped to outrun, but they they didn't, they couldn't. And uh, that's where they ran into problems. Uh, Life-saving crews on shore could see them through their uh, telescopes. Uh, They were flying a flag at uh, half-mast, meaning uh, it was a a distress situation for them. And... uh, well, they disappeared in a blizzard, basically. Yeah, the life-saving crews couldn't get to them because the the first life-saving crew that saw the ship, they only had um, rowboats. Uh, rowboats. And so they couldn't make it through the very, very ferocious waters. And then the next life-saving crew that tried to go out there, they had motorboats, but they couldn't find the ship. So that's why... Either the ship had gone down between those two cities, Kiwani and and Two Rivers, or it was just in a different location when that second life-saving group tried to go out and find it and never did find it. And sad to say, nobody was ever recovered from that ship. It went down in such a terrible storm that the bodies were all lost. 
and 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 that that just has no there's no closure for the families of those crew how many people were aboard the ship well that's uh, been debated uh, there was captain Schinemann and uh, his uh, eight sailors his eight hired crew we knew we know that much uh, but apparently another seven or eight lumberjacks from the north woods uh, thought they, you know, they asked if they could hitch a ride down to Chicago with uh, the Rouse on, on board the Rouse Simmons. And uh, Captain Schindemann apparently said yes, because uh, they did leave northern Michigan, but they were never seen again. And we, we have very few names, uh, only the names of the uh, uh, the crew and, and the captain, uh, but we don't know any of the uh, lumberjacks that were on board. Uh, we, there, there were no records kept of, of, of them leaving. So uh, there's probably uh, the most accurate numbers that there were probably 15 or 16 people on board the Rouse Simmons when it sank and was lost with all hands. And Captain Schunemann's family was not on the Rouse Simmons, right? Correct. His wife and daughters were back in Chicago awaiting his arrival and, and readying everything so that they would all be ready to sell the trees and the uh, wreaths and so on. And they waited and waited and waited. And Barbara Schunemann tried so hard not to give up hope. She, she waited and waited. And it was almost two weeks before she really did acknowledge that the ship would never arrive, that her husband was lost. But to her credit, what she and her daughters did was really unthinkable in those days, days before women had the vote and virtually never worked outside the home. She determined to continue on the tradition to sell Christmas trees that year. And when the train arrived with the shipment of Christmas trees, she hired a schooner and she sold trees that year from, from that Clark Street dock, just as they had planned. And of course, Chicagoans all knew the Rouse Simmons was lost, but there was the brave widow and her three daughters carrying on anyway. Well, of course, there was an outpouring of support and love for these women and 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 it just it continued for years that she was determined to continue on the tradition as he would have wanted her to no matter what no matter what it took and her her oldest daughter elsie became a media darling she really uh went after that publicity she had pictures taken of herself at the wheel of a schooner and and that uh, they kind of maybe fudged the truth a little bit made it sound like the women themselves were skippering the schooners to bring them which wasn't quite true but it made for a wonderful romantic heroic story but they did they did sell sell trees and they carried on the tradition for many, many years, more than 20 years after the loss of the captain. 
Yeah, the uh, <clears throat> widow, Barbara Shenemann, died in 1933, uh, and her uh, daughters, uh, who were all <clears throat> married by that time, uh, carried on for another couple of years, but they had uh, young families, and it was the middle of the Depression, so they, they stopped selling uh, Christmas trees as a, as a family business in, I believe it was 1935, but uh, uh, they did maintain it for, for as, as Joan pointed out, for more than two decades. And when um, Barbara Shinneman passed away, she was buried in a, a Chicago cemetery and her headstone has uh, her name and her husband's name, even though his body was never found. Uh, and there is a, a silhouette, a, a drawing of a Christmas tree between their two names as kind of a, a symbol of what uh, uh, the family did for, mm. for not just business, but also for pleasure. So it's, of course, impossible to know exactly what the crew experienced without survivors. But from the best of your understanding, what would it have been like to be on the Rouse Simmons? as it was being battered by this blizzard? Well, they would have had problems because of the, for one thing, because of uh, not just the, the violent nature of the storm, but because of the, uh, the old age of the ship they were on. The Rouse Simmons was 43 years old by that time, and even in the fresh waters of the Great Lakes, that's considered very old. Uh, very rarely did a, a ship, even, even a wooden one, last for you know 40 uh, years on the on the great lakes but uh well first of all they were overcrowded with uh, uh evergreen trees the captain had built a, a special housing in in the middle of the deck to house some more christmas trees and so for them to sail the ship these men had to climb over that special that housing and uh you know to get to the from the front of the ship to the back of the ship or to maneuver uh, or work any of the sails or any of the lines on board, and they had difficulty doing that. But uh, what happened, what probably happened, was that the ship started leaking. Uh, the hull would, would not, not have been solid anymore, and all it had to do was spring one plank, and water would have started coming in, and they would have started settling slowly to the bottom. Uh, one observer from the shoreline said that they seemed to be... Uh, Looking through a telescope, he said they the ship seemed to be heeled over a, a little too far to one side. So we're not quite sure what uh, exactly happened there. The conjecture is that that housing uh, that held the uh, uh, a lot of evergreen trees on the deck of the Rouse Simmons was uh, washed was broken off and washed away by the storm, and uh, uh, the the regular pilot house uh, housing uh, on, on the, the vessel was also washed away. Uh, it's not uh, on the shipwreck. Uh, the masts are all there, so uh, although they broke off when the ship hit the bottom of Lake Michigan, but uh, uh, so they, they, they weren't demasted or anything like that during the storm, but uh, they probably just foundered they couldn't do anything they couldn't get they, they had one little rowboat on board and it w would probably not have held even three or four people safely under those conditions of, of uh, the storm so um it, it was pretty much a, a losing proposition to try to save the ship or themselves one of the things that was probably happening was ice was building up on the ship mm -hmm. because they they were in a virtually a blizzard mm -hmm. and 
the ice added to the weight. Uh, it was an already overloaded ship and had more crew than it should have had. So when you add, a, a, I don't know, a few tons of ice, well, it makes the ship virtually unmanageable. You can't steer. You can't do anything. Another thing to remember about storms on the Great Lakes, they're very different than storms in the open ocean. In the ocean, you get big rollers. Not so in the Great Lakes. The Great Lakes has short, choppy waves. You hit one wave, you come down in the trough, and you hit another wave right away. And it makes it almost impossible to control a ship in that kind of violence. And, and so add all those factors together, and I'm sure the men were freezing absolutely freezing. So what happens to your hands when you start freezing? You can't do anything with your hands. I'm sure they couldn't hold on to the wheel or or anything to save themselves. And they probably were all washed overboard mm -hmm. on one of the violent, you know, uh, waves that hit and the bodies could be all over. Sorry to say. These November gales, the captain certainly would have understood the risks of sailing at that time of the year and the possibility of encountering devastating storms like this one. Uh, did he take precautions when planning their route to Chicago? D did he try to hug the shoreline or, or was it more a matter of getting there as fast as possible? Well, it's pretty much a direct route, a, a, almost a straight line from Manistique, Michigan, down to Chicago, Illinois. Uh, and uh, yes, they weren't that far offshore by far. Uh, I mean, they probably weren't more than, than five or six miles offshore. They were pretty much following the shoreline. They could see the shore. And so they were never out of sight of land. But uh, th they left the, the harbor at, uh, near Manistique uh, thinking they could outrun the storm. They knew a storm was coming. That had uh, been part of um, somebody's forecast. And so they, they knew it was coming. It was on its way. They thought they could uh, beat it, and they couldn't. And even though he knew there was a storm coming, he felt absolutely obligated to make that run. He had promised that they would have Christmas trees. His customers were waiting. His family was waiting. Mm -hmm. And he could not pay these men unless he got to the got to Chicago and sold those trees. So it, it was imperative from a business point of view that he needed to get this run done because it would be the most profitable of his whole year. And but also he had made promises and he wanted to keep those promises. Yeah. Captain Shineman had told his family uh, that uh, they would be back by Thanksgiving Day. They left on the they left Manistique area on the Friday before Thanksgiving, figuring, okay, we've got six days. It usually takes three days to run uh, down to, uh, uh, to Chicago in a sailboat, so we've got a bit of leeway there. Well, the, the storm pretty much stopped them in their tracks. Uh, they were not quite halfway down to Chicago when, uh, when they disappeared. 
that's the thing about storms on the Great Lakes. They come up very suddenly and they don't listen to the weather forecasters. They have their own idea. Right. I mean, a popular saying here in the Great Lakes is, if you don't like the weather now, just wait 10 minutes. <laughs> so as you've said, there have been 6,000 plus shipwrecks on the Great Lakes. Why is this one remembered over almost all of the others? There are many reasons for it. First of all, everyone loves Christmas. It's, it's a season of great joy and promise and hope. And yet there was this tragedy in the middle of this happy holiday season. And the tragedy happened because someone was trying to make Christmas for Chicagoans. And then what happened after the ship sank was the heroic nature of the captain's family, these brave women who were doing what men always did. <laughs> it wasn't easy for them because they had no role models. Up until the mid-1930s, uh, the Shinneman uh, family was involved in the selling of uh, the continual uh, selling of Christmas trees at the end of every year. And the Chicago newspapers certainly reported on that and reminded people of the what happened to the Rouse Simmons in 1912. However, in the mid-1930s, when they stopped selling Christmas trees, uh, the, the story went dormant uh, for about 10 years. But after World War II, the, one of the Chicago newspapers printed a large story about uh, the Rouse Simmons uh, being a Christmas tree ship and what happened to it. And, and ever since then, it seems that uh, um, other newspapers have uh, jumped on the bandwagon and also report that story. And of course, the more it got reported, the more it branched off into other areas of the arts. Artists started uh, drawing, doing paintings of the Rouse Simmons underway and in, in, uh, at the Clark Street uh, dock. And uh, songs were being written, have been written in, in the last 20 years about the Rouse Simmons. Uh, and people have written books. There have been several books written about the Rouse Simmons. Many of them are children's books. And so what, what started out uh, as, as just, you know, annual newspapers uh, stories uh, really branched out into a, a wide a wide field of, of the arts. Well, excellent. Yeah, thank you for sharing the story of the Christmas tree ship. I was actually introduced to you by the narrator of the audio version of your book, Charles Huddleston, who has a really amazing voice, doesn't he? He did an amazing job. He's excellent, uh, an excellent uh, reader, uh, and and he adds uh, inflections, tonal inflections that uh, that show emotion. And he do, he does an excellent job. Yeah, he really did a wonderful job on the book, and uh, we were so pleased that uh, that uh, that project happened. We we were very glad about it, and he's a wonderful human being. So you've written many books. Outside of the, the Christmas tree ship, is there another book that you think listeners might especially enjoy? Uh, well, 
I I have a particular favorite, <laughs> and it's called The Wreck of the Griffin. And uh, to, to me, the story of, of the Griffin is is such a it, it's such a, an amazing piece of history, and it's a huge mystery. This the Griffin is the most sought and the most found ship on the Great Lakes. Of course, as Chris mentioned earlier, it hasn't been proven that it's been found. However, everyone wants to be the one who finds it because it's been called the Holy Grail of Great Lake shipwrecks. And everyone wants to be the one who will make history. So that I think that's a really really strong book and it it's uh it well i'm very proud of it <laughs> it's a beautiful yeah. book and and uh and it's very very complete yeah have you looked for the griffin do you think you know where it is oh well we uh we have some ideas we have done some looking uh there was a uh, well the the tv series expedition unknown uh, joined us for a search. Obviously, uh, you'd have heard about it if we'd have found the Griffin. We did find a shipwreck, but it uh, was something else. So, you know, so um, yeah, we're we're still hot on the trail. We think we're getting warmer, but uh, you know, the, here in the Great Lakes, that's basically a, a, a spring, summer, and early fall activity. Is uh, you know, going out looking for shipwrecks. You really don't uh, stand much of a chance in the wintertime, usually, of, uh, you know, in December, January, February, March, of uh, having any luck going out finding shipwrecks, because you can't get out there, for one thing, because of the ice. But, uh, yeah, we're looking forward to next summer. We're going to continue the, you know, the, the quest to find the Holy Grail of the Great Lakes. <laughs> uh, of course, when you're looking for a ship that's, been at the bottom of one of the lakes for 350 years, uh, the trail is pretty cold. <laughs> so yeah. so there, it's, there it's were, very difficult. You know, there were no survivors of that particular shipwreck. And so, you know, the saying, dead men tell no tales. Uh, well, we're, we're trying to piece it together. I mean, there's e enormous amount of conjecture, <laughs> but uh, that's all it is. Um. When, when the Rouse Simmons was found, um, there was a lot of media coverage of that. Kent Bell, Bell Richard found it. On John Steele's boat. Yes. And so those two guys were the first divers uh, to, to visit the uh, uh, Rouse Simmons. That was in uh, October of 1971, a long time ago. And, uh, and, uh, and the, the pictures that they brought back and have been brought back since then mm -hmm. you know when divers dive on it are amazing and will take your breath away the christmas trees are still there the skeletal remains of christmas trees below deck wow yes yeah. and it's it's such a, a sharp reminder of how tragic this was and 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 that's added to the legacy as well the mm -hmm. legacy of this of this ship has also been kept alive in Chicago by a modern day Christmas tree ship. The uh, Coast Guard brings sh brings trees to Chicago every winter on, on the on the on the Coast Guard Cutter Mackinac. 
and it's and it's so wonderful. It's for poor people. They their trees are distributed by the Salvation Army and some other groups. And so when you go there, and it's the the ship is just festooned with with lights and with with trees and and the coasties are there and it's a wonderful celebration and and a, a wonderful tribute to the memory of of that christmas tree ship the rao simmons and that started uh, rekindled that tradition in chicago in the year 2000 so this is a uh, clearly a, uh, a new millennium uh, rekindling of uh, of uh, that that traditional story that is more than a hundred years old of the Rouse Simmons. Oh, amazing! What a nice tribute to such a tragedy. It's it's pretty great that the legacy of the the Rouse Simmons continues on. It's a special bit of Christmas history for Chicago. They hold a they hold a ceremony at the beginning of every December when uh, the the Coast Guard ship brings a, a thousand Christmas trees to be distributed in Chicago. They hold a bit of a ceremony at a, a statue of a, a captain at the helm uh, at Navy Pier, and um, uh, it's it's to remember not just the victims of the Rouse Simmons, but all sailors who have died on the Great Lakes, but specifically. It, uh, it, it obviously the specific focus is on the Rouse Simmons and its crew. Well, I, I've really enjoyed having you on. Merry Christmas. Happy holidays. Well, thank, thank you. you. It's and, been a pleasure. And, you... uh, we hope you have a wonderful holiday season too. Absolutely. Thank you. Thanks again to my guests, Joan Forsberg and Chris Cole. Their book is called The Christmas Tree Ship. And an extra thank you to Charles Huddleston, true crime audiobook narrator extraordinaire and friend of the show, who allowed me to use this Christmas music you hear at the beginning and end of this episode. It's taken from the audiobook, I Want to Come Home Tonight, by Troy Taylor, and narrated by Mr. Huddleston. This has been another episode of the Most Notorious Podcast Broadcasting to every dark and cobwebbed corner of the world. Have a safe tomorrow. Mysteries at Midnight, be your destination for detective whodunits.
and captivating mystery stories. You'll hear classic stories like Sherlock Holmes, Agatha Christie's Poirot, and short tales from H.G. Wells, Charles Dickens, Edgar Allan Poe, and others. I'm Christopher, and I read these classic stories in the soothing style of a bedtime story, so you can listen to them in bed when you drift off to sleep. Search for Mysteries at Midnight on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favourite podcast app, and follow and subscribe so you don't miss out on new episodes. Have you ever wondered how inbred the Habsburgs really were? What women in the past used for birth control? Or what Queen Victoria's nine children got up to? On the History Tea Time podcast, I profile remarkable queens and LGBTQ plus royals, explore royal family trees, and delve into women's medical history and other fascinating topics. Join me every Tuesday for History Tea Time, wherever fine podcasts are enjoyed.